1: Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall podcast. I'm back with I'm back, but but also our co-host uh, Kate is back. Uh, hey. Glad to see you, Kate. I guess you actually you you, you got away, right? You got a, actually uh, went away for a week, and and I guess it wasn't just a a staycation. You actually we don't have to get into where you went, but you actually did go somewhere, which is you know in in the in the COVID era oh, that yeah. does that doesn't go without saying. Um, so that's great little
2: thing. I guess you feel thing refreshed like COVID does not stop Philadelphians from headed to the Jersey shore. It's like, yeah, a, it, that's it's what that's
1: that, that's like salmon running, you know, <laughs> yeah. kind of going back to the going back to the original stream. No, totally. that's yeah. instinctual. <laughs> yeah. So we got uh, we still have, you know, we're, we're still dealing with the uh, uh, the unfolding COVID epidemic in the United States. And uh, a president who seems to get more and more feral. Uh, as as his his election re-election prospects become more uh, uh, dubious, and then we have and we're going to talk about this these congressional negotiations over whether there will be uh, more COVID relief, extension of unemployment, uh, all 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 these kind of things, and it's it's uh, Kate has been following this, and it's one of these very weird weird stories weird dynamics of a negotiation because on the one hand you fit you know usually democrats want more aid more spending you know more more support for uh people in financial distress republicans want less but in this case it's not even clear the democrats are kind of involved the republicans can't figure out themselves what they even want to do plus you have this paradoxical case where in in If Democrats wanted to be really cynical and political about it, they should like up the stakes and say, "Okay, $30 billion, you know, stimulus is all will all will accept and have nothing and just let the economy, like totally go into a tailspin and and, and, you know, uh, take away any remaining hope for uh, President Trump. So it's all a mess and a mess in not just in the basic sense that a lot of people are hurting around the country. And as the. As the epidemic has intensified, and and you know reopenings that were underway have sort of moved to reclosings, that people's unemployment, you know, it's a mess. But it's a it's a particularly Trumpian kind of mess, because again, the Republicans are. Kate, we're going to get into this, but at least uh, my sense from a distance is. You can't even Democrats can't even really kind of get into the game because Republicans themselves can't figure out what they want to do. So it's 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 uh, really all over the place. Before we get any further, let me remind everybody that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Grady's Cold Brew is here to help you stay cool and caffeinated this summer with their signature New Orleans style iced coffee. If you're still holed up at home, Grady's can bring the coffee shop to you. Their line of brew it yourself bean bags ship directly to your door for less than a buck a cup, and the system couldn't be easier to use. This is this is this is uh, true, I've, I have uh, I have done this many times, and it's 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 seriously easy. Just add water to your pre-measured filter bags for gallons of completely customizable cold brew. No special equipment required, and shipping is free on all Grady's bean bag products. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And remember, uh, you can you can get the discount by going to com. You can also buy it at Amazon and in your local, uh, grocery store, you know, kind of the local, the local place that is, uh, is open even during a pandemic. So David, what do we got? What That's are we right. doing today?
0: Yeah. So Kate, I wanted to check in with you about the, the negotiations in Congress over additional coronavirus relief. And just to set the scene a little bit for our listeners, uh, Just this morning, ADP, which is one of the big payroll processing firms in the country, uh, they have a monthly survey that goes out kind of which previews the official jobs report that happens the first Friday of the month. I believe the ADP survey this morning showed something like 140,000 jobs added in July, which is drastically... Uh, You know, slower hiring than we saw in in June, I guess, when we had something like 4 million jobs added kind of unexpectedly to the economy. uh, As Josh was mentioning, some of the reopenings uh, started to go into place. But it's been also about a week since the enhanced unemployment benefits expired for Millions of Americans. I think there's, what, 30 plus million people out of work in the country. I mean, it's just each week we get those weekly numbers. It's another one and a half million. It's even before it was, you know, five, six million people in some of those early weeks, if I'm not mistaken. So... With all that said, uh, Kate, let us know kind of where do things stand? I mean, Josh did a good job setting it up, but what have you kind of, what are the main pressure points or what are the main sticking points that you've been, been tracking over the last couple days?
2: Yeah, so last late afternoon, uh, the main four, which is Pelosi and Schumer for the Democrats, Meadows and Mnuchin for the Republicans, they had their seventh meeting. Um, and the, the biggest concession that seems to have come out of that is that Democrats have been standing really firm on the $600 a week unemployment insurance benefit, which is what we had before, which is what expired on Friday, because Republicans wouldn't play ball. The House passed a bill to expand those benefits until January, and Republicans refused to even debate it until, you know, the expiration date was upon us. So, that's where Democrats have been. Republicans, as Josh alluded to, you know, have been in disarray in that a lot of them are suddenly deciding to bulk at the deficit so don't want to spend any more money um, on this situation. So you've got those like hardliners who, you know, McConnell said at least 20 people in the Senate, uh, 20 Republicans in the Senate have said no more money at all. So you've got them. And then you've got uh, some Republicans who are still refusing to go as far as another $600 a week benefit so there's a an idea from or a proposal from ron johnson of wisconsin that would keep it at $200 a week until states could figure out a formula to replace 70 percent of the unemployed people's wages you've got a kind of similar but less severe plan from romney collins and McSally, which would give start with 500 a week in august go down to 400 and 300 and in the meantime that's supposed to give a little more cushion for states to figure out a formula to replace 80% of the lost wages um, and then Lindsey Graham's got a plan his would uh, cover up to 100% of the lost wages but you know the problem with that is I talked to some economists about it and they said that the the wage replacement idea is not bad in theory but the problem is there's absolutely no way that states can handle doing these calculations right now, I mean, even their normal unemployment processes are totally backlogged. They can't keep up with that at all. And now to somehow input a new formula to replace a new percentage of wages is just, the delay would be huge. They probably wouldn't be able to do it anyway. And, you know, as one told me, only 16 states have Uh, updated their computer systems from the 1970s COBOL framework. So it's just, they just don't have the technology to input that kind of plan. So, you know, it's almost, it's giving them something they can say, we don't want to do this, we want to do this, but it's, you know, it's not even a possibility.
1: Okay, when you say on the, like, you know, uh, come up with formulas to to do 70% Mm -hmm. 70 wage uh, replacement or 80% wage replacement, what about the money? I mean, you can come up with a formula, but, but, the, 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 there seems to be a major issue that, that the Congress isn't passing the money to do that kind of, you know, to, to, to fund that. So I, I'm a right. little unclear on that point. Like, OK, fine. The states come. I guess I'm just I just haven't been following this closely enough. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, you come up with the formula. But again, what doesn't Congress need to fund that to right. fund that? and they, And the whole point seems to be they're not willing to.
2: Right. So I would say some of these formulas are um, a split of federal and state money. But you're right that in all the Republican proposals, the states are footing most of the bill. And Democrats, as also part of these negotiations, have proposed giving one trillion dollars right to states and local governments um, to help with this. And that's something that at the beginning, Republicans are saying, no, we don't want to give any money. There's still unspent money from the other coronavirus relief bills. Um, and now they last night seem to have moved on that a bit and offered anywhere from 150 to 200 billion so still like far short of what the democrats are offering but you know it's a really key component because some people i talked to as well about this were telling me how in the recovery from the great recession it was the absolutely decimated state and local governments which is what took so long for us to get back on track you know and they're already you know pretty soon we're the states are going to be at the point where they're going to have to start laying off. They already have laid off people, but start laying off really big numbers of people. And states employ a huge amount, you know. So, yeah, that's one of the most uh, integral parts of this. So that there's, there's been some movement, but, you know. And then on the uninsure, uh, unemployment insurance, last night Republicans agreed to go up to 400 a week until December 15th. So that's the most concession they've given so far. But, you know, in kind of an acknowledgement of the political dynamic, you acknowledge, Josh, Democrats just don't have a reason to budge as much as the Republicans do right now. So, you know, everything I've heard, every public statement Pelosi and Schumer have made have been pretty vague, with the exception of that they're unequivocally saying we're not moving off this $600 a week thing. You know, a quote that um, Politico got from the meeting they had last night is that Pelosi said, I'm not going to tell single moms we're cutting your benefits in the middle of a, uh, in the middle of a pandemic. So
1: are you are you seeing to look at the, the politics and who's supporting what on the Republican mm-hmm. side? It seems to me there's you know, it's 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 become a cliche and sort of a joke that when Republicans are out of power, they get very focused on deficits and spending and austerity and all that kind of stuff and you see that starting to resurface now but i'm my sense is what i would expect is that you have a lot of republicans you know we saw this with with Nikki Haley uh, who you know kind of went on twitter and made a kind of oh we got to get you know get a handle on spending and the deficits and stuff like that i would assume that you have a dynamic where people like Nikki Haley can kind of see trump is probably going to lose so we're you know, kind of we're already moving into opposition. So we're all for austerity all of a sudden. And she's not running anything so you know, not, not no, no skin of her back. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would assume that Republicans who are up for reelection, you know, people in the Senate who, who have to, you know, who are who are on the ballot in November, they're kind of with Trump. You know, the economy gets worse. It is worse for them. So are you, are you seeing that dynamic where, like, how many of those, to the extent that we know, um, you know, who those 20 people are in the Senate, are there any of them that are on the ballot in, in November? Like Joni Ernst. What, what is she saying?
2: <laughs> no, that's that's an excellent point. And I think the most pressure that we've seen from the Republican caucus is exactly those people you're saying, the people who are up for reelection, generally who are vulnerable in their elections, and who as of now are slated to go home pretty soon for an August recess and have to face their constituents. So there has been from some quarters of the party, the quarters that do have something to lose in November, they've been really pushing to at least say, we've done something, you know, and that's created another tension because McConnell isn't in the room. You know, he has to hear Schumer tell it, he's refused to be part of the negotiations. And I think, you know, you can point to a pretty, some pretty obvious reasons for that. One of which being mcdonald has been burned before trying to craft a deal, you know, working in step with the White House. So he doesn't want to make another one to have Trump backtrack and decide he doesn't like it. And then you've also got, he's in a position where by his own admission, half his caucus is not going to like this deal is not going to support this deal. You're I think the ultimate deal we're going to see is going to squeak by with, you know, heavy Democratic support. And then you're going to have Republicans who have to say they did something. Um,
1: and, and and probably I mean, again, it's, I, I would think it's not just a matter of like saying you did something. It's it's, you know, the economy is already very, very bad. It's a terrible climate for incumbents, but it can get a lot worse. Right. So, you know, if you if you if, if you really have no more, you could just have things get much, much worse and incumbents right. go down in, in catastrophic economic situations. That's just a, that's just a given. And again, one, one of the things that is so interesting to me, again, that for, for our listeners who maybe didn't see this, Nikki Haley, uh, the former governor of South Carolina was, was Trump's, uh, uh, ambassador UNA. to United, yeah, UN yeah. ambassador, uh, went on Twitter a couple days ago and said basically, you know, hey, before this goes any further, we got to focus on deficits, you know, no more spend, all, you know, kind of re- traditional Republican stuff. And when I saw that, you know, I, 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 can, I can speak Republican, even with a def- decent accent, right? And what she's saying is Trump's going to lose. Yeah. This is done.
0: So we... You even see... You even see that coming into play. I mean, Republicans talking about how the six hundred dollar a week enhanced unemployment, you know, benefit is an incentive against going back to work. Right? That oh, people just want to stay home because they're making more than they would in their jobs. It's like, first of all, you know, maybe we should make it easier for you know people who might go back to jobs that are uh, especially risky, whether it's restaurants or you know the service sector, like allow them to be safe for a while and and be able to you know, survive on some, some benefits until things calm down a bit. But, um, you know, it's just, it doesn't seem like that's tied to reality at all. No one wants to sit around and like, you know, not, not go back to your job or not go back to kind of a normal life, you know, but have you picked up on any of that, those kinds of arguments? Yeah,
2: that's a really good point. So that is something a lot of the Republicans have been saying. And, you know, you're right from the moral standpoint that there is an argument to be made that people should have the economic freedom not to work a dangerous job, especially when it's, Currently, that danger is a danger to everyone, not just those working the jobs. But mm-hmm. even from an economic standpoint, I could, there are tons, there's tons of research on this argument. And specifically, some um, economists at Yale did a study on this first round of $600 a week benefits and found no discernible slump in employment. So that, I mean, it just doesn't hold water. And the people that I talked to were kind of making the case that. This $600 a week right into your pocket is the best way to stimulate this really injured economy because you want to give people money and you want them to spend it right away. And yep. if it's if the money is going to more people who, let's say the $600 a week means they're making more than they were before this, that means those are very low-income people who are making less than the average before. And low-income people will spend that money right away because they have to. They don't have the luxury of saving. So. Just from an economic standpoint, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It's just the classic Republican thing of trying to, you know, it's welfare queens. It's just that in another form of being like, people are lazy. People don't want to work, you know, when it really, I would think the reaction from finding out that more people who are getting this check were making less than this before should be concerned, There's something with that. Yeah. you know, and an acknowledgement that this pandemic is hitting, you know, in huge numbers, people, the lowest income people, that's who it's hurting. That's who it's driving out of jobs because those people tended to work in industries like retail and hospitality and things that have been decimated by the crisis.
1: I remember when this, I mean, because there's been a long, you know, a decades long, and in some ways, if you get past, you know, uh, U.S. partisan politics, centuries long debate about this, you know, the, you know, it's basically a moral hazard, uh, Our argument that, you know, do you create incentives not to work or do you, probably a better way to put it is, you know, do you, do you make people less desperate, right? (laughs) Which, which at a certain level is, is a feature, not a bug, right? Um, And, and when this first, when this came up at the beginning of the epidemic, what, I mean, a, what solved a lot of Republicans was, you, you know, we got a presidential election coming up, but the other thing was, is like we want people not to work. That's the whole point. We want people to stay home. So, like, are we paying people to stay home? Yes, because we want people to stay home. Um, and a- as you said, I mean, I'm I'm not familiar with the particular research that uh, you're pointing to that that was actually uh, about what happened in the spring, but there there have been many studies in recent decades that show that the things that Are predictable by a very um, how can I put it a very hypothetical style of macroeconomics that should happen. You know, if you make it, if, if you pay someone, you know, X to go to go to their job and X and a half to stay home. Logically, we're we're all logical actors. We stay home. In practice, those things don't actually. Tend to happen in a lot of cases for a lot of reasons, just because people have have uh, lots of have lots of motivations beyond purely, you know, uh, rational actor uh, uh, motivations. You know, one thing is that the unemployment insurance is going to run out eventually. So, like, if you give up your job it, people and people know this and, and in a lot of ways people want to in this, this gets a, a very dicey debate. But in many ways, people are invested in their job. So there's a kind of a reflex to I go back to my job, all this kind of stuff. So I'm not I'm not surprised that um, that those studies came out the way they did. But it's also the, uh, also the case that and and this is why in some ways with the with the PPP debate, you know, the, the wage replacement loans that 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 we were doing in the spring is a a lot of this kind of debate about, oh, should these guys have gotten it? Those guys have gotten it. You're talking about an economic crisis. You're basically trying to shovel money into the economy. um, And you should be careful to make sure it goes disproportionately, A, to people who in a basic life sense need it, but also people who will spend it. Right, this at a that that's no longer the moral argument. It's it's who will pump it into the economy, but at a certain level, you're just trying to pump money into the economy, and and kind of exactly who deserved and didn't deserve it is, is sort of a, a a secondary secondary thing. But it is fascinating to see how you know most political parties, certainly most presidents, know not to force an economic collapse on the eve of your election.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you <know? laughs> correct me, correct me if I'm wrong too, but didn't after the $1200 stimulus checks went out, I mean, consumer spending did go up a bit, right? I think the people were spending that money on and you know that's the point, basically, of why you why you inject that money into the economy. So yeah,
2: that's what one person was telling me how the combination of getting that twelve hundred dollar check as well as the six hundred a week was enough to keep people at the levels they were before, which is where you want them, you know. But now twelve hundred dollar checks are out are have run out. The six hundred dollar a week one has run out. I mean, I don't think you have to be super well-versed in this to realize people are not going to have enough money to meet their, you know, to pay rent, much less to be getting takeout and ordering clothes and doing the stuff we need to keep the economy right. afloat. And I mean, to some degree, John, uh, Joshua, you said, Trump knows this, you know, that's why he and um, Meadows keeps floating these executive, ap- executive orders, which just don't seem to have that much grounding in yeah. reality.
1: I was, I, I wanted to ask you about this because I keep seeing they're putting out statements like, oh, we're considering an executive order. And like, you can do a lot of executive orders. You can't spend money based on, that is not appropriate. You just can't. That, I mean, that's that's like a hard stop. So I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, any I can't imagine what they're talking about that would, I mean, they can, you, you know, Trump is still saying he passed that VA reform act that, that became law like three years before (laughs) you can say whatever you want, but it's hard for me to see anything that they can do with an executive order that is going to material, that is going to actually pump money into the economy, which is obviously what he needs, you know, what he says, whatever, but he needs the economy not to fall into, you know, yet a deeper chasm.
0: Josh, let me just ask you a quick question as an aside. Um, I noticed over the weekend, I think it was on Face of the Nation, the chair of the Minneapolis Fed is calling for like a four to six week strict lockdown and, and saying if we really kind of hunker down and basically shut down again, like the economy will recover, you know, more robustly. It'll it'll just be better for kind of economic activity altogether. What do you make of that argument? Does that make sense to you? I mean, is that I, I'm su- something I'm you supp- think we should consider? I'm
1: supp- Surprised and 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 happy to hear that. I don't know if it's if it's someone who is you know kind of an Obama appointee and you would, you would not be surprised to hear that, or if it's someone who has a more cons, you know conservative re- reputation. Uh, you know, for the last two, three, four weeks, I have been thinking that doesn't seem politically likely, but I have no question that the most cost-effective approach would is to do a kind of a draconian lockdown that you you know they are federalism issues but as much as you can shut everything down nationwide or at least in the states that are kind of out of control right now and yes it sucks it would cost a lot more money but about six weeks which you know the number that this person i guess said is is what i've been thinking six weeks later you come out on the other side and things can and you can be in a totally different world if you've actually done it right i mean i think that um I think that Tony Fauci had a, in one of the member, you know, one of the numerous rogue interviews he's he's given over the last couple of weeks, said something like, you know, our shutdown was about 50%. In Europe, it was about 95%. And there are some kind of wild things you hear. Like in France, there was a period of a few weeks where, you know, you needed like a a slip of paper.
0: I think in Italy as well. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I I guess it was kind of one of these things where you write your own slip of paper, but you know, it, it was pretty intense. And, but we we are now in this really really bad situation where we are both really unhealthy we both have a, a bad epidemic and we're just stalling economically and and in a lot of ways that thing that we did in the spring which i i can't even remember what the total price tag was but it was a couple trillion dollars sort of like what was a waste, we, You know, it really was kind of wasted. And, and we're not even talking about all the people who died and got sick and had, you know, their own private, you know, personal financial fallout. But like the country took on, again, something like a couple trillion dollars of debt and we wasted it. And so, yeah, I, I think that's we're just in this thing where we're going to constantly have an ongoing epidemic and constantly having to spend huge i mean insane amounts of money, I mean I'm not a deficit hawk, but you know <laughs> this is a lot of money this is you know you, you there are consequences to this and and it is it is demonstrably far better to spend now as opposed to have you know anemic growth for like a decade, which one of the lessons of the of the you know the first financial crisis um yeah. I think that is that is obviously what we have to do. I fear that it is, it is absolutely not gonna happen because for all the political reasons that we know um, and because of President Trump. And I, and I think given how he has framed his presidency and how the epidemic has gone and all that kind of stuff, For him to say, okay, we're going to shut down again and it's going to be airtight for six weeks. I mean, no way. I mean, just no way. He's not going to do that. Even though, even though, right, that could get him, you know, late September, kind of like, okay, we're, you know, now we're where Germany is. And we can kind of do stuff and schools can reopen. I I fear um, and I suspect what's going to happen is that, um, Trump will lose re-election, and then we're going to have that what is it, two and a half months, or you know, a, you know, two plus month period, where he's going to be acting out and being a complete asshole because he's so upset, and he's certainly not going to lock down, or maybe he'll just like you know, resign. who knows what will happen? Take but off it, early? Yeah, what? Who knows? And that it'll that that a Biden administration will come in and kind of have to say all right we have to do this we got to you know swallow hard and 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 just do this because we we are in a situation now where we perpetually have the worst of both worlds we both have a a a grave public health crisis and an economic crisis and and you know i i've done a few posts about this over the last couple weeks that i don't you know people don't get just how much worse it is in, in the United States than in other countries like the United States. I mean, it's not like I have to tell people, hey, it's bad. I mean, people know it's bad. They're, they're, they, you know They're losing their jobs. They have relatives in the hospital. People have died. But I don't think people get that in the other parts of the world where they have the wealth and the state capacity to operate the way we at least thought we could operate, In relative terms, it's done. You know, I was just, one of the numbers that I've looked at a lot recently is the number of new cases you have in a state or a country or a jurisdiction per 100,000 people per day. Okay? So number of people per day, new cases per 100,000 people. In most of Europe and Asia right now, that number is under one. So under one person per hundred thousand people, new cases per day in New York, which is kind of the best, you know, as good as it gets in the United States, it's three or four people a day kind of bounces back and forth in all those states in, in, in the Sunbelt and the South, even though they're kind of, you know, they seem to have kind of come off the, you know, come off the peak a bit. It's at least 30 a day. So it's 30 times worse. Thirty times worse you know so and and uh you know Trump had that press conference a few days ago where in that kind of like you know sullen defeated sweaty kind of kind of <laughs> affect he has where he said ah oh, you know now countries that were doing really well there it's new outbreaks and it just shows it's not my fault and blah 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 and they have had these flare ups they've they've kind of had a, a, a you know, a, a bit of a jump up in Germany. Um, Hong Kong has had a flare up and they've kind of cracked down again. They've had the same thing in Japan. But all of those flare ups are like between 0.5 per hundred thousand, like maybe two per hundred thousand. So what they're calling a flare up is under what our best states are doing. Again, it's like it's over. It's in relative terms. It's like It's done. In other parts of the world. And not just a kind of like everybody's in like, you know, kind of in a, in, a, in, a, in a plastic bag at home with the door locked with like an air tank that they're breathing through. Not only do they not have cases, but their economies are restarting. You know, again, it's so bad that I really think, and I'm not just talking about like some guy with a, you know, MAGA hat down in Texas. Kind of everybody doesn't realize how much worse it is here and how if you really do the work, which is not easy work, it really does mean shutting things down for a significant period of time. You can be back to something that is kind of normal, not totally normal, but people have jobs or doing stuff.
0: Even in New York, like you're saying, Josh, I think yesterday's numbers, which came out uh, sort of midday today, our positivity rate in New York state was Less than 0.9%, 086 or 0.8%, something like that. Yeah, I haven't, uh, I, I haven't like uh, looked at, the, I, I saw uh, But there were still momentarily, um, yeah. Still, six hundred some cases in New York State, right? Which, like you're talking about in Germany, in Hong Kong, you know, a hundred cases, and people kind of start to freak out and clamp down again. Yeah, so I even have, like in our best case scenario, it's still quite a bit higher it, than it, it, than international. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think places. that
1: in uh, I even looked in the last couple of days, but when I looked, you know, three or four days ago in Germany, I think they had um, they had one day that got up to about five hundred people, but Germany is four times the population of New York or a little more than four times. It's, it's, I think they have like 83 million people. New York is like 19 million people. So yeah, I mean, you know, (laughs) it's kind of going relatively well in New York and like it, it is, you know, four times, five times, six times the cases they have there. Um, and, and, you know, we have this, I think we've, we uh, can't remember if we talked about this last week, but we have this debate about, well, is there some sort of limited herd immunity in, in New York and especially in New York City, because so many people got it. And again, that's not herd immunity when there's 20 or 25 percent of the population. But it, it, it does slow the spread to some extent because a number of people are no longer vectors, all that kind of stuff. Well, they, they, they never had that big an outbreak in Germany. Um But this is across the board that, you know, just it's doable. And we didn't do it. We just made a decision that we were just going to kind of shuffle through. And it's just, um, I think we're going to be wrestling with what that means for just, you know, for the rest of our lives. It's, it's, it's unreal.
0: Well, on that uplifting note, I thought we could spend the rest of the episode talking, um, about another happy topic, which is Trump's threats to delay the election and his the noise he's making and tantrums he's throwing over, you know, whether the results will be rigged or illegitimate. And this is all part of his campaign against mail-in voting and absentee voting amid the the pandemic. Josh, you had a post maybe last week, earlier this week, um basically talking about how, Trump's threats to delay the election or postpone it or whatever are really amount to kind of present day election interference. It's not just a future tense threat that he's going to try to move the election date. It's just that he's actually he's messing with it now today in the in the present present tense. Kind of tell us more about sort of that post you were you wrote or the argument that you were making there
1: Well, I think it's a kind of psychological warfare because I think that a lot of us. Uh, certainly, his defenders. Say, oh, he's joking. Can't take, you know, can't take a joke. That whole thing. Um, but even people who are not Trump supporters, I, I think, often look at it as, okay, he said this, but assuming he doesn't, you know, kind of uh, tell the post office not to deliver the votes, or you know, it, as long as it's just talk, as long as he doesn't do it, kind of, you know, it's annoying, but kind of no harm, no foul. But in fact. It is he is already working to sabotage the election. It really is a kind of psychological warfare, just because of what has happened right now. And I think you can see we can all see that ourselves if we think about it. Now, look, we have we pre-Trump we did not have a perfect voting setup. You know, at TPM we were talking about this for like literally dec- almost decades now. Um, voter suppression, voter ID, all the different things. But at a basic level, in previous elections, we know that even with those imperfections, basically everybody's going to vote. Everybody's going to turn out to vote. We know there are pre-existing issues of some people have harder time voting than others. But, but we kind of know it as a baseline. And, and we're all going to work our hardest on both sides. And then we're going to count. And it's not a perfect system. But we know the system. And that's what's going to happen. And, and we'll see what the result is. And that is kind of what an election is. That's what the buildup to an election is. That's what that's what campaigning is. That's what if you're uh, an ordinary voter or activist or just a concerned citizen kind of doing your stuff and volunteering and all this kind of stuff. And that is a big process. And there's a lot of psychological weight to it. There's a lot at stake, all that kind of stuff. And that is kind of what an election is. And now you've got this whole other thing of can he delay the election? Like, is he going to try to delay the election? Is he Is he going to leave? If he loses, um, is, he seems to be, and, and this is not hyperbole anymore, he seems to be actively trying to sabotage the post office to, to throw, you know, voting by mail into disarray. He has all these kind of lawsuits. So it's this kind of big question, like, are, are, are we actually going to have an election in the normal sense like, are a lot of people going to vote by mail and then somehow their votes don't, aren't counted because, because the, the post office is, has been so decimated that a lot of them don't get delivered or he goes to court or, or who knows what? It's a distraction, but distraction doesn't quite capture it. He is keeping everyone off balance because he is using the powers of the presidency to create an atmosphere of doubt about whether or not there will be a real election or whether or not the election will matter. Like maybe there'll be an election and he'll, you know, one of the things that I have seen people talk about, and I think this is, I don't think this will work, but I think it is entirely possible that they will try. And that is that they've created all this stuff. Oh, vote by mail. It's all fraud. it's, It's, you know, all this kind of stuff that, um, you have a scenario where on the election day vote, the kind of the results you see on election day, maybe Trump's winning or maybe it's very close. This is that's not that, you know, that's 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 not impossible at all that, 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 that it could it could work that way. And then it's, you know, it's one o'clock in the morning and Trump's already said have to have results on election night, you know, that he has Bill Barr, you know, kind of seeking, uh, you know, an emergency injunction with the Supreme Court, that these, the mail-in ballots are too – there's too much fraud. And uh, my client, you know, <laughs> Attorney General, is not the personal lawyer of, of the president. But, I mean, who are we kidding at this point, right? Um, Donald Trump will be irreparably harmed by, uh, by counting these votes. And if you remember, in Bush v. Gore, one of the things I was always struck by, if you go back to Bush, the Bush v. Gore uh, decision – um what was that it was decided and and the bush argument the bush lawyer 's argument was that he will be harmed, like uh, candidate George W. Bush will be harmed if you count these votes or do this thing or the the other thing, and it always i mean let alone sort of the problems with what happened in the in in the conclusion of that election, it always struck me as as very odd as a basic aspect of legal and constitutional reasoning that the personal interests of this person, George W. Bush, who cares about George W. Bush? Like, voters have, a, you know, voters uh, have skin in the game. They, uh, I'm, I'm at a loss for the moment, uh, for a moment, what the, what the term, you know, voters have standing. The country has, you know, the system, the Constitution has standing. But this individual guy, George Bush he has no standing, like he's going to be harmed. And therefore we have to, we can't, we can't, you know, count all the votes. Like what? Like that, that, that just seems bizarre in itself, let alone how the case was actually, um, how the case was actually uh, decided. But you can see that as a sort of a logical path for them to go down because that path has already been cleared uh, 20 years ago. So I think that That is a that is a key thing. He is working to sabotage this election. He's making it very hard, almost impossible for us to have a normal, free and fair election, not because of what he may do in four months or however long I'm losing track of time, Uh, not because of what he may do not because of what we fear he might get away with, but what he's doing right now. He is creating this cloud of uncertainty that puts everyone, sort of wrong-foots all his political opponents. And obviously, um, candidate, you know, you could say whatever you want at a certain level. Politics is about kind of like, you know, you know, mind fucking. Pardon the French. Of uh, you know your opponents and 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 kind of you know kind of putting them off guard. But he's using the powers of the state to do it. You know, he can say whatever the hell he wants. But what he's what he is threatening are using his presidential powers, and that's not okay. So um, I think what is happening right now, just the talk, the talk is action. He is already. Making it very hard for this country to hold a true election. That's a big and I love deal.
0: that. I love that. Yesterday, he all of a sudden carved out a big exception in his opposition to mail-in voting by saying that, "Hey, in Florida, it's actually great. So, Florida, send in your ballots. Um, it's all good." And of course, that comes after <laughs> uh, you know reporting that Democrats had like a. You know, twice the number of kind of registered, you know, vote by mail kind of applications or absentee ballots. And so it's like, oh shit, all of a sudden I, uh, you know, might be looking at a tough situation in Florida. So go figure, it's all good there. Well,
1: there's a, there's a, there's a guy, um, uh, an, an election expert at one of the Florida universities who pointed out. Because, you know, it's you don't have to be a, a Trump creating uncertainty to say that. And we've reported on a lot of this. Having everybody suddenly vote by mail is, is a big deal. You know, states, a lot of states, they don't necessarily have the capacity. There's issues of there's only so much printing capacity in the country. Right. It's 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 a big challenge. But but he pointed out that Florida already has a very robust vote by mail system. And the percentage goes up every election. So they are actually, Florida is actually um, uh, one of the states that is in a pretty good position to do this. So you can see this, one of his, you know, maybe whoever's running his Florida campaign is like, dude, like, shut the fuck up. Like, what are you doing? Right. You know, these things have these, these, uh, uh, you know, Trump is, Trump is very canny as a hustler, and that is what he's done his own his whole life. He hustles, he hustles people, he cons people, and and throwing them off their game, putting you kind of wrong footing you is is what he's really good at. Um, it's funny one during the twenty sixteen election, it may have even have been in in twenty fifteen. Uh, a TPM reader emailed into our uh, talk email address. And this is someone who's in the, 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 you know, high, high level New York real estate world. Not one of the titans, but someone who works for one of the titans, you know, in that kind of thing. And he was explaining kind of like, you know, how does Trump get away with this kind of stuff? And what he explained is, you know, Trump does business with kind of like an, you know, ordinary New York real estate guy. You know, Trump gets X, he owes this guy 10 million bucks. Doesn't pay it. Uh, other, you know, fellow titan, they grab lunch and, and the guy's going to say, hey, you know, you haven't paid me yet. Can, and Trump kind of goes in there. You know, he doesn't say, oh, or doesn't try to avoid the conversation or um, certainly isn't apologetic. He goes into it. He flips out at the guy, threatens to sue him. And then suddenly the other guy's like settling for pennies on the dollar. And then he's, like, giving Trump money, right? This is what he does. He hustles people. He scams people. He cons people. And that is what he's doing right now with the whole country. But you can see he's also not – I mean, Trump is not a detail guy, right? (laughs) So as much as he's conning everybody, he's not necessarily thinking of the second or tertiary order effects of sort of like, wait a second. A lot of my voters are old people, right? And kind of, you know – Uh, You know, COVID talks and bullshit walks. Right. A lot of these old people, they may be like, oh, with their MAGA hats and everything, but they also don't want to die. So there is a lot of potential for things to, um, you know, to backfire on him, uh, as I as I suspect that was what was behind that that Florida thing.
0: Kate, I was going to ask if you think this is all just like going to blow up in Trump's face with, you know, like Josh is saying, Trump's older voters, you know, his base to a large extent, uh, Trump attacking mail-in voting and all of a sudden, you know, those supporters aren't going to want to wait in a 45 minute, hour and a half or longer line with a bunch of other people in a gymnasium in November (laughs) when, uh, you know, maybe who knows what the coronavirus situation will be.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most baffling stances he's taken to me, but, you know, as much... I don't know. I I haven't understood what he's doing ever since the beginning of corona when he kind of refused to expand testing, which seemed to be, to me, to be at that time the number one thing he could do to save the economy and, you know, not be dealing with all this going into the election. And the mail-in voting thing, yeah, it's I mean, it's the same thing to me. You're going to have some people... I guess who will say, okay, I'll go in person. But as we saw, you know, with that first Tulsa rally, there is a limit to how much people will put their bodies on the line for him. And we've seen it. And that's why he's not holding these big events anymore. So, yeah, I mean, I can't see how it does anything but hurt him. But, you know, like we've been talking about for weeks, he, you know, for all the talk of his 4D chess and such, it's just, I don't know, he seems to just, be floundering and not really thinking ahead and maybe just doesn't have the capacity to connect what this stance means for him. You know, he's just gotten into his head that mail-in voting helps Democrats and therefore it is bad. And that is his position, regardless of the fact that there's not even evidence that mail-in voting is better for Democrats in normal elections. So yeah, I don't know. I don't see how it does anything but hurt him. But you know, he tweets about it what at least once a day, so we don't see it letting up.
1: (laughs) I think I think the one thing that the one way in which it potentially helps him, although even helps, is maybe not the right way to kind of think about it, is that the objective situation for him is really bad. Really bad. I mean, frankly, it was it was really it's been really bad for him the entire three and a half years. He's never been popular. He's been consistently unpopular through his entire presidency. I think he was always going to lose. But certainly it has gotten much, much worse in the last uh, three or four months. He's very unpopular. The economy's bad. Everything's bad. So you play it normal and you're just going to lose. So he does have some interest in creating ongoing uncertainty. Because, again, you play a conventional game and you're just going to lose. If, if you're a president who has 40% popularity and consistently more than 50% of the population does not approve, and even you got some numbers like, you know, almost 50 or more than 50% of the, the population strongly disapproves of you, you you play it by the book, you're just going to lose. So he does have some interest in continually, you know, throwing the, the chessboard up and, you know, just because uncertainty at least creates outs you know outside possibilities that you scramble the deck right and so that is the one way that all of this kind of uncertainty and game playing has some logic to it not that it has any linear logic to it but if you are losing you need to do something besides keep losing Um, and there's a certain logic to doubling down and tripling down and quadrupling down because if you're already toast, why not? And kind of like if you lose, you know, kind of the, um, the, the downsides for him are bounded. You can't lose twice. You can't double lose, right? You can only lose. So in, in some ways when he's doubling down and tripling down, he's doing it with our chips, right? The things he is doing have long-term negative effects for the country and for tens or hundreds of millions of people. But for him, if he's already losing anyway, why not double down? Again, you can't lose twice. can't lose triple, right? <laughs> His downsides are bounded, right? Yeah. Um, so that's the only way in which I think there's some perverse logic to what he's doing.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, maybe that's a good time, to, good place to leave it. And I'm sure we'll have more... On this next week, and the week after, and the week after that. Yeah. But um, in the meantime... Yeah, I can, oh, I, and I, I can only I would imagine. like
2: to uh, reintroduce the Silver Lining segment that we have dropped off on in the past few weeks. All right,
0: good call. <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you kick us off?
2: Okay. Um, well, I mean, I just got back from vacation, so that's always Silver Lining. But... As I told the two of you, my boyfriend got a job, which is very exciting and also double exciting given the bleakness of the landscape. Yeah, that's
0: great. That's great.
2: Yeah. And it's a great job and he's very excited. And
0: yeah, congrats to him.
2: That's awesome. That is a big silver lining.
0: I can go next. Um, I've just been, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I've been biking around New York City a lot as uh, a lot of us. Are kind of avoiding public transit and um, you know kind of left to our own devices to get around the city. And last weekend, I biked to the beach uh, in the Rockaways in Queens, uh, which from my apartment in Brooklyn is about like fifteen or sixteen miles each way. So it was a pretty serious ride. But um, I will say, jumping into the ocean after biking like sixteen miles down to the beach is a pretty great feeling. So that was nice. Oh, that's
2: so I- fun.
1: I will say my, my older son has been doing a lot of biking with the city bike system in, in, mm. in New York city. And, and, um, you know, there's some inherent dangers in, in cycling in New York city. Um, yep. and he's, he's still fairly young. Um, and obviously we've, we've tried to make sure he does all the obvious things, but in a, in a, in a pandemic, you, you, you've got to, um, you got to do balancing, right? Uh, you know, kind of preteen, teenage boys you you can't keep them in the house non-stop right so you you need to find things they can do get outside and he, he's he's been doing a lot of that stuff too i i would say my silver lining is um with the kind of uh semi-perpetual lockdown i have been doing i've been able to do some uh not not just spend more time with my family but do some uh Kind of life projects with my wife and 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 my and my and my kids, Uh, and that's that's um, you know that's what life's about. So those have been those have been very gratifying, and uh, they've been in in a sense, if not made possible, uh, furthered by the larger climate of awfulness, right? Because we're not going into our offices, you know, we, not the collective we necessarily, but at at TPM. Um, So yeah, that's my, that's my silver line. That's great.
0: All right. Yeah. That's nice to hear from everyone.
1: So remember, uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Uh, Greatest stuff in the world. We all drink it. You can uh, purchase some at Grady'sColdBrew.com. If it's your first time ordering, you can get 20% off with the promo code TPM. And you can also order at amazon.com or your local grocery store. And there's, you know, a bunch of different bunch of, you know, it's funny. We talk about tech. We talk about formats. A lot of different formats of cold brew ice coffee. You can get the bean bags or you can get the the sort of the the box or the bottle. So it's all good. All good
0: stuff. All good. All right. Talk to you guys next week. All right. Bye. Later, folks. Bye. Bye.